0: Welcome to the Oceanside Sanctuary podcast. We're continuing our teaching series, Misunderstanding Jesus. In this series, we're revisiting the odd, abused, and ignored sayings of Christ. Today, we're exploring Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14 and 20 through 24. In this passage, Jesus passes by a fig tree and curses it the next day in verse 20 the disciples see that that tree had withered after this Jesus then makes some statements about belief and faith what does this all mean how do we understand the value of this act from Jesus today in 2019 listen now as pastor Jason Coker takes a thoughtful look at this unique passage
1: This series called Misunderstanding Jesus, where we're revisiting some of the odd and unusual or difficult to understand passages that Jesus talked about when he was teaching throughout his time here on earth. There are all kinds of uh, issues that we sometimes have with Jesus's sayings. It often is said that Jesus was one of the greatest Spiritual teachers of all time, even people who aren't Christians, will often say, Oh, Jesus was a wonderful man and a great teacher. But very often, I'm reading through the things that Jesus said, and I'm like, What are you talking about? I'm a teacher. This makes zero sense at all. Nobody would teach people like this. And one of the things that I really love about Jesus is that he often breaks through our usual ways of understanding things, often challenges us in ways that we don't expect. So, We are visiting some of those sayings in this series. And today we are going to jump into uh, one of the passages that was recommended to us online. At the beginning of this, we went online and some of our social media accounts and said, this is what we're going to be doing. What should we talk about? And this was one of those suggestions, Mark chapter 11, verses 12 through 14. Why did Jesus curse a tree? So that's what we're going to be looking at today, Mark chapter 11. If you have your Bibles, you can turn it there. Otherwise, I am going to put it up on the screen. But before we do, uh, would you just say a prayer with me? We're going to jump into this passage and ask the Lord to be with us. Father, we thank you for today. We ask God that you would uh, continue to impart a sense of your presence here, that we would continue to be open uh, to the ways that you are moving in our midst and speaking to us. Uh, challenging us and stretching and growing our hearts to be the kinds of folks that you have created us to be, uh, to be the kinds of people who are providing hope and goodness and nourishment to the people in our lives, in this neighborhood, in our workplaces, at school, wherever it might be, God, it's our desire to be more like you and to be people who are bringing healing and hope to the folks in our city. So we pray all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I've told you guys this before, I think, but Janelle and I have three avocado trees in our backyard. Maybe one of the greatest things about living in the San Diego area is that you could possibly have avocado trees. And I don't know, for those of you who eat avocado toast, or for those of you who make fun of people who eat avocado toast... I just want you to know that Janelle and I have been eating avocado toast for like 25 years. So we were doing it way before it was like hip and trendy. And this is just the way you do it, by the way. You mash up the avocado, you spread it on a piece of toast, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper. It doesn't need anything else, right? I mean, it's just the most amazing thing. And so now we are fortunate to have not one, not two, but three avocado trees in our backyard. This avocado tree, this one right here, I just picked these this morning, by the way. This is the one that gets sort of taken for granted Uh, by the way. It's right off of our deck over on the west side of our deck and it produces like it seems like thousands of avocados every year this time every year. This thing is so full of avocados that the branches are like doing this. Right? They're like stretching and like super heavy with all of the avocados on it. And we also have, this is probably not very smart, but we have like a set of table and chairs under that tree. And this time of year, it's dangerous to sit there because these things drop and they like cause, they put holes in the deck. I'm not kidding. It's a great tree. This is one of our, our favorite trees. But we sometimes sort of take it for granted because it's always producing amazing fruit. The second tree is right off our deck around like the north side of our deck, and it's this one, and I love this one because it produces like these super round, like soft ball, ball sized avocados. These are not ripe, by the way. These have like another month or so to go, so this is gonna get even bigger. This is probably my favorite tree right now, and the reason this is my favorite tree is because two years ago, it was dead like it was 100% dead, like you could take a picture of that tree and put it in a horror film because it had like, you know, these gnarly branches with no green on them and, you know, it looked like something straight out of like Halloween. It was a great Halloween decoration in the back of our yard. And, and Janelle and I were like, maybe we should just cut that tree down because that gnarly tree that's dead is just blocking our view of, uh, you know, El Corazon, you know, the dump in Oceanside. So, we were, uh, we were like, should we chop the tree down? And, and I said, no, let's just trim it. Let's just prune it back. To any, if there's anything that appears to be living, we'll leave that. Let's just cut it way back and see what happens. Because avocado farmers do this, right? Like they'll massively cut back their avocado trees and then they'll come back. So two years ago, we did that. Hacked it way back until there was just like one little green nub left. Two years later, that thing is producing fruit. And so that's super exciting, right? Like we're like, wow, that actually worked. That's amazing. Now what did I do with the other avocado? Oh, that's right, it's right here in my pocket. This is my least favorite avocado tree. Now here's the thing about this avocado tree. This is the one off of the east side of our deck. It's outside of our bedroom window. And we have lived in this house. It'll be seven years now. This November we'll have been in this house And it was four years before I even knew this was an avocado tree because it's different. It's a very different variety than the other two. I don't even know what kind it is, but but nothing happened to that tree every fall. It didn't produce any fruit of any kind. I just thought it was some like, you know, kind of pretty tree growing off the deck that had these big shiny green leaves. And then one day, I don't know how, one day either Janelle or I, one of us was like, That looks like a, a lot like an avocado tree, but we've been here for four years and nothing's happening. Is it really an avocado tree? We, you know, we were curious. We didn't know. So we started looking it up. Sure enough, it is an avocado tree and never ever once had we seen an avocado on it. And if there's anything to produce deep rage inside of a Southern Californian, it's an avocado tree that isn't producing avocados. And so Janelle would like water that thing and she fertilized, don't don't be giving away my punchline. So she would water that thing and fertilize that thing. Nothing happened, year after year, nothing happened. And then we got very, very frustrated. I came home one day and Janelle was beating the avocado tree with a hammer. She was beating the trunk of the avocado tree with a hammer. It was like there was a murder happening in our backyard. I was like, you know, babe, I understand you're frustrated about the avocado tree, but that's probably not a good thing to do. She said, no, no, no. I read this on the internet. Somebody said you should beat the trunk of the tree. It like shocks it into producing fruit. Now, if you know me at all, you know my response to that was, Psh. no, no. That doesn't make any sense at all. It's completely unreasonable to assume that if you beat an avocado tree, it will produce. So I might have rolled my eyes. There might have been a lot of passive aggression happening. I might have rolled my eyes. I might have, like, you know, done one of these sorts of things. I might have even made fun of her in public, you know, in front of other people at dinner for the next year or so until a year later. That thing sprouted avocados. All of a sudden it was full of avocados. And then of course I had to like apologize. And then she started making fun of me. The thing about that third tree is we have never ever tasted an avocado off of that tree. We've been there for seven years because two years ago it like exploded with avocados and there were these beautiful, small, almost black in color avocados. And I was so excited to try this new avocado until one night, like we went to bed and the next morning we came up and came outside and every single avocado on the tree was gone because raccoons had come and taken all the avocados off the tree. That was two years ago And this year two years later it is growing avocados again and here it is little avocados in a couple of months hopefully they'll be ready and I will be super excited to eat them I say all of this of course because uh, the whole point of having avocado trees is to have the avocados the whole point is that once a year or once every two years or however often it is that your tree fruits, what you want is to go outside and not necessarily admire its beauty, although they are beautiful. Not necessarily sit under the shade, although that's really nice to be able to do on occasion. What you really want, the reason you water the thing and you prune the thing and you fertilize the thing, the reason that if you're Janelle, you speak lovingly to it and you speak kind words to it is so that once a year, once every two years, you can pick the avocados off of it and you can split them open with a knife and scoop that creamy meat from outside of them and spread it across toast or put it on your salad or whatever it is that you do. That's the whole point, right? So Jesus, uh, who is apparently a bit hangry in Mark chapter 11, comes along and has a similar experience. It says, On the following day, When they came from bethany jesus is traveling through jerusalem at this time this is right as he's entering into jerusalem or entering into what will be his triumphal entry and entering into what will eventually become his passion week it's sort of an action-packed period in the life of christ says on the following day when they came from bethany he was hungry and seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf now figs aren't bad they're not as good as avocados but just you know believe me when i say the same principle applies okay So, seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see whether perhaps he could find anything on it, and when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again, and his disciples heard it. So, Jesus is, like I said, a little hangry, right? Like he's looking for something to eat. He comes upon the fig tree. It has no figs on it. He's upset about that, even though it's out of season. And so he curses the fig tree and the disciples heard him do it. In the morning, as they pass by, uh, this is skipping ahead. If you're in your Bibles, this, this particular story is sort of separated into two sections. So there's that first section we just read. And then there's another little blurb and then there, it skips ahead to a little bit later. So in the morning next day, they're passing by, and they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Okay, can I just tell you now, this is where this gets problematic for me. This is where I really begin to struggle with this passage. Up to this point, I'm good. I'm there I get angry too when I'm hungry. It's totally understandable. There are lots of things in the world that if I could curse them in that moment and watch them wither away, I would do it. Believe me, I get it. But this is the part that I struggle with and maybe you do too, I don't know. So truly I tell you, this is Jesus responding to Peter. Truly I tell you, if you say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and if you do not doubt in your heart but believe that what you say will come to pass, it will be done for you. So I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And so this passage, I think, is enormously misunderstood and abused, and people wrestle with it in ways that I think often are not very healthy or helpful, because this passage appears to say that if you really, 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 no, really believe, And what you want or what you think God has told you you're going to have then you will have it and my trouble with that is not just that I'm sort of skeptical by nature which I am right it's not that it's not just that I'm skeptical by nature it's that can I just tell you can I be honest with you I've tried that I've tried that for the better part of a decade I've tried that over and over again and sometimes it appears to work most of the time it does not And when I say that I've tried it, I don't just mean that I've tried it like with small things, like when the avocado is not bearing fruit and I'm like, curse you, avocado tree, and it doesn't wither, which is deeply unsatisfying, by the way. (laughs) I don't just mean that. Like, I mean really important things. Like, God, will you heal this person that I love who's dying? God, will you solve this problem for This person that I love who's wrestling with a a soul-crushing experience in their lives and nothing appears to happen. Very few things in life, I think, are more challenging to a person of faith then the notion that God does not care or will not respond to your suffering when you're struggling with it. And a passage like this can be really, really difficult and dangerous, I think, because it gives the impression that the Christian life, if it is merely believed rightly, if it's merely understood correctly, opens up for you the power to be like God in the way that we see it in this passage. The ability to just get what you want at a moment's notice and to have that kind of power available to you. Now, you can disagree with me if you want to. That's kind of what this place is all about. But I just don't think that's true. And I don't think it's true because I've tried it. And not only did I try it, but I tried it to the point where it drove me nearly crazy. So I can't, in good conscience, recommend that you try it. But you know, maybe you're like me, and you got to touch the hot stove and get burned in order to figure it out. So I struggle with this passage, and I think this passage is used in that way uh, over and over again. And, And the way that this becomes most heartbreaking, I think, is that this notion of belief, Jesus' words here where he says, I tell you the truth, if you just believe it and do not doubt, then you'll be able to say to the mountain, you know, jump into the sea, and it will. This notion of belief, I think, gets really twisted in a way that's extraordinarily unhealthy, and here's how I think that works because Jesus said you can have whatever you want if you just believe it, and then we try that and it doesn't work, or it only appears to work very infrequently, then our response to that is usually to try to conjure up more belief. Like it's reasonable to say, Jesus said that we'd have whatever we want as long as we believe it, and then we try it, it doesn't work, so we think, well, we need more belief. Let's add more belief to that. And so we try to conjure up more belief. We try to drum up more belief. We try to stir up more belief. By the way, side note, little parentheses, if you're a religious leader, this is enormously helpful for when people aren't acting the way you want them to. Because you can just be like, you know, if only you believed a bit more like me. This is the implication, right? If you believe more like me, then you could live in a house like the one that I live in or drive the car like the one that I drive or have a happy marriage like the one that I have, or have beautiful, amazing, talented, successful children like the children that I have. And so, uh, if, in, in case you don't know, none of that is true. So, sidebar. But I think that happens a lot, right? So we try to conjure up more belief. And if, if things aren't going the way we want, then sometimes we use that, in a way, to either pressure people or guilt people or coerce people or control people, uh, or deflect our own insecurities about this and about God onto others. This creates an enormous mess in church. And so this is what I'm struggling with, and and it's why I think that this is an important passage for us to wrestle with. I also think that we're missing something really key here, That we should be aware of because this idea of a tree or the motif of a tree in Scripture is everywhere. So I think the most important question to ask with a passage like this is not to start with what does it mean to believe? Right? Like, does my belief have to rise to the level of a conviction, or does it have to rise even higher to the level of certainty, or maybe like it has to rise to the level of a fierce ideology that we hold on to no matter what at all costs? Rather than starting there, I want to start with what in the world is Jesus doing talking about a tree and cursing a tree? And and when we ask that question, we begin to notice that trees are everywhere in the Bible, by the way. Uh, the Bible starts with a tree you might have heard of it. its tree of life in the Garden of Eden the tree of life by the way is a religious symbol or motif that exists in virtually every culture on the planet the tree of life is a reflection of that same symbol there is deeply embedded in Judaism and Christianity and virtually every other culture this idea that trees convey a really powerful message about what it means to live life. And so at the center of the ancient Near Eastern mythologies about creation, almost always center around this tree that gives life, whose fruit you can go and pick and eat, and it will nourish you and sustain you forever. We find that same tree, by the way, incidentally, at the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation as well, when the the apostle John has this apocalyptic vision of the future, and he sees a new heaven and a new earth planted beside the waters of the new heaven and the new earth are these trees of life that provide nourishment forever for God's people, and the leaves of which are used for the healing of the nations, it says, which is sort of a reflection of a lot of languages in Isaiah as well. This idea that Fruit-bearing trees are somehow symbolic of the way that life is supposed to be lived when we are deeply connected to the Spirit of God in some way. So I just want to mention that because we see that sort of concept everywhere in Scripture, and we don't have time to look at all of those passages today, but I do want to show you this, this sort of deep idea of a tree as being symbolic of what it means to live a good and fruitful life We see picked up by john the baptist and one of my favorite passages luke chapter 3 so i just want to read this to you it's not going to be up on the screen so if it's okay with you i'm just going to pick it up here luke chapter 3 verse 7 listen to what john the baptist says by the way john the baptist is out in the wilderness preaching about the kingdom of god all of the le- religious leaders come out to see him because they're curious about this guy. And as all the religious leaders come out to see him, here's what he says, verse 7. John said to the crowds that came out to be baptized by, or by him, you brood of vipers. Can you imagine if like we greeted people at church like that? What are you doing here, you snake? Come on in. But that's how john greets his guests you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath and then he says this bear fruit worthy of repentance there it is he's picking up on this image of a tree bear fruit worthy of repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves we have abraham as our ancestor in other words what are you talking about we're fine we have the promise of Abraham. We're all good. He says, no, no. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up better kids than you. This is a hard word. Even now, the axe is at the root of the tree. And every tree that therefore that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Paul picks up on this image of a tree of life, a tree that produces good fruit or a tree that produces bad fruit. And he says, you're the tree that produces bad fruit. Just because you're deeply rooted in the promise to Abraham, do not think that God can't take an axe and cut you down. In other words, John is saying you don't have privilege. Something is expected of you. God is expecting you to bear good fruit for him. Jesus picks up on this same image. Luke records this. This happens before Jesus' little little encounter with the fig tree. And this is why I think, uh, really, Jesus' disciples should have had some sense of what Jesus was talking about here. Luke chapter 13, this is the parable of the barren fig tree. Jesus says this, Then he told this parable, a man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came looking for the fruit on the tree and found none. Doesn't this sound familiar? Okay, so this is a parable he told before he actually walked up onto an actual fig tree and found no fruit on it, right? He says, kingdom of God is like this. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard and he came to the fruit uh, to find fruit on it and he found none. So he said to the gardener, See here, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree and I still find nothing. Cut it down. Why should it be wasting the soil? Tough words. But get this, I love this. The gardener replied, Sir, let it alone for one more year until I dig around it and put manure on it And if it bears fruit next year, then that's all well and good. But if not, then I'll cut it down. So I I think what's happening in this particular passage is that Jesus is demonstrating, like he often does, he's acting out a truth about God and about the kingdom of God and about our spiritual lives. He's acting it out in a way that's memorable. You see, the tree represents Israel's unfaithfulness. Just like John the Baptist in Luke chapter 3, Jesus is saying, listen, God expects God's people to produce good things. And if they don't, if there's no fruit on that tree, then it's worthless. It's actually not worth anything at all but to be cut up and thrown into the fire. I mean, at least it'll keep you warm. At least it'll help you cook your food. But a tree that does not produce good fruit is really not useful or helpful in any way. Now, it's helpful to know that in Mark 11, we have the first half of this parable. Jesus rolls up upon the fig tree. He sees that it's empty. He curses it, right? And then we have a break in the story. And the very next thing that Jesus does in Mark 11, if you look in your Bibles, is he goes and he cleanses the temple. Jesus goes and he proclaims to the corrupt priests and money changers, those who are profiting off of the misery and the hurting of others, and he cleanses that temple. And then the very next thing is him explaining to Peter that if he really believes, then he will have what he wants. And so this, I think, brings us back to the question of belief. If what Jesus is doing in cursing the fig tree is demonstrating that we are people who are supposed to by nature, by grace, by blessing, by design. If we are supposed to be people who produce good things in our lives, good fruit, things that are useful to other people. If that's who we're supposed to be and Jesus is cursing the fig tree because it doesn't produce good fruit, then the question is, what does that have to do with belief? Why is Jesus talking about belief in the first place? And the answer, I think, is very simply this. Unlike trees, or grapevines, or tomato plants, or whatever, unlike those things, we don't just produce fruit by nature. We have to intend to do it. Avocado trees don't have to decide to produce avocados. Avocado trees are not moral agents. They can't make decisions for themselves. They are either healthy and they produce fruit or they're unhealthy and they don't. But you and I are not trees or plants, we are people. And God has given us the ability to decide that we are going to be the kinds of people who produce good things. In Luke chapter 3, when John the Baptist says to all those people who come out to him, I tell you the truth, the axe is at the root of the tree. God is about to cut you off from his promise. They say to him, tell us what to do then. And you know what he says in return? He says, I'll tell you what to do. If you have two shirts... Give one to somebody who doesn't. He says, if you're a soldier, speaking to the Roman soldiers in the crowd, like the non-Jews in the crowd, the people who are not a part of the people of God, to them, he says, if you're a soldier, treat people fairly. That's good fruit. It's, oh, right, there's that whole passage about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Good fruit is the presence of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. And these are all things that we have to decide that we actually want. It's not enough for us to say, but I'm reading the right Bible and I'm wearing the right t-shirt with the right pithy saying about Jesus and I'm going to the right kind of church and I'm worshiping the right kind of music. That's, That's not what this is all about. This is about us becoming people who produce love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and gentleness. It's about us becoming the kinds of people who give our extra stuff to people who don't have enough. It's about becoming the kinds of people who see injustice and equality in our community around us. And we pour out of the good things that we have so that others can be taken care of. And none of that can possibly happen if you don't at least believe that's a good idea. So it really does all start with belief. If I stand up here and I say to you, the right way to live life is not to make as much money as you possibly can and hoard as much as you possibly are able and live in the very best house that you possibly can live in. That's not the best way to live. The best way to live is to take everything that God has given you and to pour it out on behalf of others. Guess what? You either believe that or you don't. And if you don't believe it, then you're not going to live it. This is, I think, the mustard seed of faith that Jesus talks about. When Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if you had faith like a mustard seed, then you could command the mountain to do anything you want, and it would respond to you. Jesus isn't saying that we have to somehow like conjure up enough belief to somehow connect to God to tap into that power. Jesus is saying, no, no, no. You have to at least believe that it's possibly true. Otherwise, you won't do anything with it. That's what I think Christian belief is it's not conviction although it can grow into conviction, it's not certainty, although it can manifest at some point in your life like a rock-solid certainty that you are squarely and firmly in the grace of God and be grateful for that, but it's not really that. Christian belief is really, at its bare minimum, your willingness to believe that it's possibly true. Your willingness to, like, entertain the possibility that Jesus might be telling you the truth. It all starts there. If you don't have that, then you won't step into the possibility of what the kingdom could produce in your life. And that's where the real magic is. You know, the trouble with a passage like this is that the way it's written and the way that we tend to read it uh, it tends to appeal to us in our desires for power. We tend to want to be more like Harry Potter than Jesus. And I, I got nothing against Harry Potter. I'm a big fan. But there's a reason that kids like books about magic. There's a reason why I like men in their 20s like Avengers films. It's because it speaks to that deep sense that we really aren't powerful. But the real power, the real magic is that if you plant a seed and you bury it like a dead body and it breaks apart and decomposes, and then you water it and all the old dead things that make up the soil, they all come together. You know, Think about this. This is wild, you guys. Soil is former dead things. The seed breaks apart and it dies. You add water and it sprouts. It comes to life. And inside that tiny little seed is the potential for an enormous avocado tree that will feed me avocado toast until I die. That's the real magic, that's the power we miss that magic when we desire for the other kind that skips past the process of god using death and the water to wash and nourish and the sunlight to grow us and strengthen us until we're producing really good things the magic for us the power for us is to be rooted in the soil Of our relationship with god and to trust that he is growing us into people that will produce good fruit to feed and to nourish each other and that starts by believing that that could be true otherwise you won't worship otherwise you won't pray otherwise you won't sit and listen in the stillness of a place like this for god's still small voice that's what we're inviting you into So I'm going to ask the band to come back up and they're going to play one last song for us and we are going to spend a little bit of time entering into a final time of worship Hey, Mona Lisa. So would you pray with me? God, we thank you for this opportunity to sit in front of uh, these powerful words and images We ask God that you would bring before our imagination the magic and the power represented by good and growing things. We ask that you would open up our imagination to reflect on what it might mean to be deeply rooted in the soil of your grace, what it might mean for us to grow what it might mean for us to mature and fill out for our branches to reach up to grasp for the sunlight of your presence and what it might mean for us to bear fruit god we pray that you would produce more love in each of us that you would produce more peace in each of us that you would bring forth kindness That we would become the kinds of people having been so deeply rooted and so strengthened that we would be the kinds of people whose joy and patience and kindness become nourishing for others and God, we confess that we can't possibly make this happen on our own. But God, I desperately want to believe that that is possible. So help my unbelief. Help pull away the layers of jadedness and woundedness wash us with the water of your spirit so that we can drink in the cleansing of your presence that we would let go of unforgiveness that our imaginations would be healed so that we could deeply desire what's possible. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand up and sing with me? Let's worship together this one last time. And as we do... I want to invite you to imagine what it would look like for you to be more deeply rooted in the presence of God.